we have tools. I call it the degree first toolkit. Mm-hmm. What do we do to transform grief? Grief is the most available, untapped, emotional, personal resource for transformation. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Share Your Stories series. This is a podcast experience where we get to explore humanity one heart at a time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and a grief coach who specializes in life. I am the founder of Grieving Coach, and I help people convert grief into power. If you feel inclined to make a donation to keep events like these going, you can follow the link and support the show. And that would be fantastic. Joining us this time is Lynn Prashant, somatic thanatologist, certified grief counselor, and a fellow in thanatology with the Association for Death Education and Counseling. Lynn trains, counsels, consults in the United States and abroad, working with loss of any kind. She wrote Transforming Somatic Grief, the training manual, and is the founder of Degriefing, Integrative Grief Therapy. Degriefing employs both verbal and physical methodologies to relieve an individual's emotional distress mental anguish, and physical discomfort. She has a wealth of experience, including residing at the Living Dying Project, working with Stephen and Andrea Levine, as well as working with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and many others. In this episode, we will hear how Lynn got into grief work, what she's learned from pioneers in the field, and where her adventures have taken her. Lynn, thank you so much for your willingness to take time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today. It's an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much, Jenny. An honor for me, too. So tell us how you got into this field of grief. Well, there's actually two levels uh, to respond here with an accurate answer. And it seemed as though as a very young child, I was very concerned with people who looked like they didn't have anybody to hug or they looked hungry or lonely. And I remember at the age of five saying when uh, on a Sunday afternoon, we were riding through New York City saying, who's going to love that lady? Who's going to give her a hug? And I started to cry. I was five. Well, fast forward about 28 years, I found myself heading toward the Living Dying Project in Santa Fe, New Mexico. My husband, Mark, had head and neck cancer, and we'd explored conventional methods to arrest the cancer to save his life. And at one point, we were given a book by a dear friend of his, and it was about conscious living and conscious dying and written by Stephen and Andrea Levine. Mark wrote to them, they said, yes, come as soon as you can. And we found ourselves driving from New York City across the country to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, In order to answer your question directly here, it was the support of Stephen and Andrea, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the Living Dying Project itself, and lots of spiritual study that I'd been involved in that showed me my direction, showed me what my life's work was to be. Mm -hmm. And it was very obvious in the actions of what I was learning and who I was relating to, just how important this work was 
and how much support Mark and I got at the Living Dying Project and how I wanted to share what I learned and deepen what I could teach. And that's been my quest ever since 1984 when he died at wow. the Living Dying Project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an amazing quest. Yeah, it's an amazing quest. <laughs> So you've been tutored unto, under some of the most well-known pioneers in end-of-life space. What are some of the most impactful things you've learned from them? Well, there have been a number, of course. And when you ask that question, certainly a moment with uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross pops into my memory and a very profound moment with Stephen Levine. And with Elizabeth, it was again in 1984 when Stephen and Elizabeth came to Santa to Fe, New Mexico and had not taught together or been reunited for many years. And Mark and I, due to the fact that we were at the Living Dying Project and the fact that he was severely ill, people say, well, how did you get together with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? I said, the admission was a very sick husband. And we had a private meeting at three o'clock in the afternoon. It was a Sunday afternoon in March of 1984. And she looked at Mark and she looked at me and she looked at Mark again and looked at me. And the third time looked at him and then said to me, he's doing well, you're not. And I looked at her and I said, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And she said to me, oh, young lady, it's a good number of years ago. Oh, young lady, how sad it is that you believe life is fair. And it really stopped my breath and my thinking because that was one of my go-to phrases. It's not fair. Mark was 36, I was 35. And Elizabeth put it in perspective. It wasn't fair. It just what was so. Mm-hmm. And so I bounced from that to a moment with Stephen <clears throat> after Stephen had come to visit us at the Living Dying Project. At that point, Stephen and Andrea were living in uh, Taos, New Mexico. We were in Santa Fe. And Stephen and I were sitting in the kitchen. And one of our rituals when he came over would be to share a dose equis at five o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, we'd share the bottle and we'd toast. And he toasted and he said, see this glass, it's already broken. And this man upstairs lying in bed in meditation, dealing with very serious cancer, he's already gone. And when Stephen said that to me, I knew what he meant and I felt a chill go up my spine and I understood that these moments of precious time that we were left with Mark, who died actually the July following, this was probably the beginning of April with Stephen, I knew that there wasn't a moment to be missed and that someday I'd be sitting here talking about it mm -hmm. as, a, as a, an aha moment that we were doing our spiritual work out of time and space. And then on some level, Mark would be with me forever. And on some level, his body couldn't contain his spirit much longer. Yeah. As far as Andrea, I'd like to give her a moment of her credit. She said, and Andrea would sit on the stage next to Stephen in meditation when we would do workshops. And this was at the Scottish Rite Temple in uh, Oakland, Lake Merritt. And Andrea had been in meditation and she opened her eyes and said, if you can live with the don't know, you can live with just about anything. And many people in the room were dealing with their own diagnoses. Others were dealing with brokenheartedness, bereavement due to the loss of a loved one. Mm -hmm. And our question of what we didn't know resonated through the room. How would we survive this loss? How would we find ourselves again? How would a broken heart heal? How would we be able to talk about this ever with clarity and compassion for others going through a similar moment, whether it be the diagnosis or the diagnosis of a loved one? Mm -hmm. So I'd like to just add one more thing that fits right here. 
that Stephen and Andrea were on the stage together. And she, as I said, was sitting in meditation. And when he spoke, you could hear a pin drop in the room. His words were so precious, so authentic and so humble. And he looked out at the audience and said, if you truly love your partner, you will hope they die before you so that they don't have to witness your death. And there was a hush that even deepened in this room of hundreds of people. Because most of us, in my case as a survivor, we just knew that we did the best we could to love our beloved, in my case, my husband and then my sister. We, most of us, certainly me, had never thought of it in the reverse, that we were doing the work, the spiritual work of, as Ram Dusk says, walking each other home. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me quite that well at that age of 35, which I was. I see it more now as I see my friends beginning to show signs of the truth of the life that their bodies have lived. Starting to see that now in our 70s. Yeah. It's very humbling because the differences when Mark died, he was 36. When Donna died, she was 49. Mm-hmm. Now all my colleagues and friends who are dying or showing signs of illness, they're me and I'm them. So it's a very different perspective of the impact of the work with loved ones and colleagues as, as one ages. Yeah, I can imagine. It's quite, uh, it's very humbling. It's doable. It's humbling. It requires lots of focus and positive self-talk. It's very easy to fall into. I have some friends that say, I can't remember anything. And I say, I can remember everything. In my case, I'm fortunate because I have a very giving and supportive memory, quite a clear memory of my Mm -hmm. life in detail. I encourage friends that say, I can't remember anything to realize that perhaps they're deepening that possibility of not remembering. We're all in this together, watching each other from different angles and aspects. Mm -hmm. So Jenny, in truth, working with Stephen and Andrea and with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I'm actually going to present for the Elizabeth Root Kubler-Ross Foundation next week. Mm -hmm. It's an honor to bring forth the work, to humanize it. It's not textbook. It's real life with, of course, textbook learning, Mm -hmm. theoretical backing to do my work well. It can't just be experiential. It's got to hold jewels of wisdom and information from many of my teachers. Right. From Bessel van der Kolk to John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, to many People, Robert Niemeyer, the head of psychology at the University of Memphis. Uh, we pull our thoughts, we, we do our work, we learn to practice self-care, and then we open up our screens in this world, in today's world, and serve whomever is reaching out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very humbling also because my work's very physical as a yoga teacher, as a body worker and body work teacher this year of non-contact and pouring everything of love, compassion, and knowledge into the screen and often saying, I wish I could jump through the screen and hug you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's like hug our puppies, hug our families because our immune systems need that contact. So definitely. Definitely have learned a lot and still continue to study, learn, and uh, maintain a focus. And uh, we'll offer a certification training in this work, Day of the Dead, in Mexico in the end of October for uh, All Souls Day, All Saints Day, and immerse ourselves in the Mexican culture to give another perspective on the factualization that death birth and death go together. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an agreement. It's not a victimization. We're not martyrs yeah. because if and when we die because we all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's bodies of vulnerable bodies. So it's about telling our truth 
to ourselves and learning about who we are. Stephen Levine says, what we're looking for, who we are is what is looking. What is looking, we're looking for ourselves. He names it as a homesickness for God uh -huh. or the goddess or however we name that. Yeah. Our quest is for self-awareness, self-actualization, to embrace the suffering that life offers and work it and transform it and not become victim to it, yet mm -hmm. not, de not deny how it impacts us on a physical level. Our bodies are our barometers. They tell us what's true. Our minds are not our friends. Our minds are tricksters. <laughs> yeah. Our minds want to make up stories when we don't have answers. And our minds are very clever at blaming us for everything it can, even when we know in our heart of hearts we're doing our best. The mind comes in with if onlys and what ifs and maybe and all those. And that's the mind's role. It's constantly challenging. And it's not emotional. The mm -hmm. mind can't feel. The body feels, the mind thinks. So when we're dealing with situations in, with illness, with life, with mortality, the body's where we can find our truth and trust what our hearts and our guts and, and our, our sense, our third eye, our sense of being, our different energy centers are telling us. Because it's, it's, we can't outsmart the truth of life, this no. play of life. It, it, it's too big it, it's it's too wide for the human mind to identify it's more to be ex life's an experience to be lived not a problem to be solved mm -hmm. so we have to be in it and go through it and I often say in my counseling sessions if I had a magic wand and I don't there's no quick fix to loss right and we can't fix rescue or save anybody we can just work toward service toward self, service toward others, and learn about integrity and humility and compassion, mm -hmm. especially in today's world. Yeah. So. You bring up so many excellent points that we are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us they teach us and give us their wisdom, then we incorporate that, transform it, let it transform us and teach it to others and pass it along. And grief and our experience is held in our whole being. And another point that I heard was accepting the suffering, accepting the pain as part of life. Jenny, people will often call me. I always do a 20-minute to 30-minute screening. If somebody calls me and says, you know, Lynn, I've read about your work. I'm wondering if we're a good fit, a good emotional, energetic way to do some work about mm -hmm. the losses that an individual has had. Mm -hmm. And often what I will hear is that I knew that something was going on, yet until the pain stopped me or until the headaches continued or the body itself be, was more tired than usual or I felt more confused or more, uh, I cried so easily. And one of the things that we've not normalized in culture is loss. Mm -hmm. But if we, and this goes all the way from nursery school to medical school and beyond, that doctors are taught to save lives. Yeah. And so right here, I'm going to interject in this world of what we're talking about with palliative care and naming it and, and defining it. When an individual is really too compromised, that their bodies are exhausted and their resources are few or treatments meant to save lives like chemotherapy or, um, for either pain control or to eradicate tumors or radiation 
um, when the body is too sick to continue. Mark said to me one day, you know, even if they developed a cure for cancer today, my body is too, it's too broken at this point. I, I don't think I could live longer. Mm. So palliative care, in the words of my work, which I call degriefing, which is an oxymoron, because in truth, as we are speaking, Jenny, people are dying, babies are being born, and people are dying, and people yeah. are suffering. Yeah. We're in a bubble right now, an educational, compassionate, intentionally designed bubble to educate and to share. Mm -hmm. Yet the world is continuing outside of our bubble at this moment. Yeah. And so when we talk about palliation, it's about the shift from saving the body to serving the being. What does that person need? How does that person see whatever time they have as meaningful, productive, uh, connected, heartful? Kubler-Ross said that preparatory grieving was for finishing business. So has this individual spoken to everybody they want to say, I love you, goodbye, or I love you and there's something I never expressed that I don't want to depart without sharing? Mm -hmm. that, that this preparatory time is for self-acknowledgement and awareness to know what do we want? Do we want to watch cartoons until we stop breathing? Do we want to go into Buddhist meditation and chanting? Everybody needs to find their way. Yeah. Many people, when, when I'm asked, uh, what do most people want for what's called a good death? Many people will glibly, quickly answer, and you're smiling. I get you. I guess that you're going to know exactly. They want to die in their sleep. And Kubler-Ross said, well, you know, that's possible. Sure, some people actually do. Yet there's a question for those of us who don't. What do we want with this time? As long as it's our time, what do we want? Do we want pain control, um, lighthearted movies, meditation tapes, spiritual videos? Do we want to be listening to Deepak Chopra? Do we want to be listening to my, one of my favorite comedians right now? And if you don't know him, anybody in the audience, his name is Sebastian Maniscalco. And when I just was the uh, kind of the case study I was the um, case manager for a dear friend that died on Easter Sunday. As I was winding my day down, I would put this person on YouTube and make sure to laugh a little to balance out the crying during the day, mm -hmm. or at least the weeping when I was on my own and in my own office again, my own sanctuary where I could release. Because while I was holding space with doctors, hospitals, and the uh, clinics and the labs focus was the intention mm -hmm. my stuff later yeah that's how a conscious compassionate counselor honors whomever it is that has asked for support clarity or guidance they're the focus as in meditation we note okay laundry later thank you come back mm -hmm. They're the focus. Yeah, yeah. So a little humor in the midst of the challenges of, again, as Ramdas says, walking with each other home, knowing in our Rolodex who can help and when or where around the country or the world people are that are willing to embrace this level of human contact, of spiritual work, called in, in the yogic tradition, the sadhana, the mm -hmm. path, the spiritual path that we find ourselves on, the path of service. To say that it's selfless is a bit of a, a bit of a quandary and because I want to share something very humanistic. Service is, service is its own reward. When we are truly in service to another, there's a sense of energetic filling up of potent loving energy 
that we can embody in the act of service. Service oriented practitioners, individuals, we don't do it for that. It's very challenging work. We find though that there is a very nurtured inner sense of well being that we step aside, we get out of the way, and we're totally focused on what's in the highest good of the other. Mm-hmm. And the more humble we are and the more authentic, the deeper the energetic well-being or healing or mind, I called healing mind, body, spirit integration. And it happens in different ways with different cases. And one of my teachers, his name is Dr. J. William Warden. And I work with his mediators of mourning and I work with his four tasks of Mm -hmm. mourning. They're forgiving, they're applicable. Grieving is not linear. The bereavement process is very nonlinear. One moment I can be thankfully talking with you and then a half hour from now, I could find myself weeping when I hear something uh, about animal cruelty or child abuse. And uh, there are two things that I, I would like to mention in the genre right now of what we're talking about. And one is called solastalgia, S-O-L-A-S-T-A-L-G-I-A. That's solastalgia. And I want to just touch on this. And the other is compathy. And they can be looked at together in a very unique way. Solastalgia is a present state of being of the global of our universe. Mm-hmm. I looked at the internet earlier and there was Germany underwater, Holland underwater, California, praying that a tiny spark of anything doesn't ignite a horrific fire, uh, a forest fire and loss of homes and loss of lives. Solastalgia is the homesickness for what once was, balance, well-being, global harmony, if in fact that's either a fantasy or a possibility uh, or, mm-hmm. uh, or a memory that's through rose-colored glasses of global harmony. It's animals being poached in South Africa. It's flooding in Germany. It's the surge of COVID again, so they're talking of a fourth wave. It's a sense of, it's, it's gun violence. It's a sense of safety that we once projected as possible, Mm -hmm. as desirably worth working toward. We're in a global malaise that has increased psychological problems during a year of quarantine. Statistically in the U.S., psychological issues, problems have been exacerbated to a huge percentage. Yeah. And when we talk about compathy, I want to combine them both. These are new terms that I'm writing on at this time. Compathy is an overload of compassion and empathy. Compathy that Mm -hmm. leads to burnout, practitioner burnout. And we saw this with the medical profession during the first stages of COVID leaning to the second and the third. We see this in um, social workers dealing with children that have lost parents or children in cages, um, in inhumanity that we're witnessing. So compathy being an overload of compassionate care Mm -hmm. and empathic connection puts counselors not only in, you know, an optional sense of, well, perhaps I'll do self-care. It's not optional if we want to maintain or edge of accuracy and appropriate connection with others. Because we too are human and empathy is necessary for heartfelt counseling. Yeah. That's what Carl Rogers says, that without empathy, it's pretty rote, it's textbook. It's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. So how do we, Jenny, how do we maintain our well-being with so many people in pain, so many people with loss of life like most of us have not witnessed before? Um, I'm born after the Second World War. 
too young to appreciate was going on in Korea, but certainly impacted in the Vietnam War when I saw my friends coming home without legs and arms or without breath. So right now we're in a very deeply disturbing yet potent time for personal awareness Mm -hmm. for us to use this, not to find ourselves flattened with overwhelm of, which it's very overwhelming. I don't like, I'm not sugarcoating any of this. Right. We have the opportunity to talk to our loved ones, our friends, our children, our siblings, clients, and normalize that it's not just up because us, because global grief exacerbates personal grief. Mm-hmm. And so to take care of ourselves, to understand if we are counseling professionals, psychologists, social workers, MFTs, coaches, we must find our personal route to maintain well-being and honor exhaustion and take time that we need. And if we find ourselves thinking about our clients and time off and we cannot re-regulate mind, body, spirit regulation, then we're not centered. Yeah. Then we can use tuning forks, acupuncture, or any of the integrative modalities to help us. Yet the quest is, and I call it the caregiver's quest for healing, how do we stay healthy being in service to others? Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is personal, cultural, and rhetorical. Because maybe I love bergamot, and yet for you, you love Roman chamomile essential oil. It's a question of what we can combine for the most balance. Because the world is chaos. Mm-hmm. Chaos is not a rarity. Chaos is molecules and breaking apart and atoms. And I'm not a physicist. So, you know, you can read Candace Pert's book called Molecules of Emotion. We are a chaotic group here on planet Earth. Yeah. Because in chaos, this is a planet moving at how many miles an hour? And it's only gravity that keeps me on this chair. I wasn't with Richard Branson in his flight into outer space. I'm not flying out of my chair because there is a chance to ground here. We have tools. I call it the degriefers toolkit. Mm -hmm. What do we do to transform grief? Grief is the most available, untapped, emotional, personal resource through transformation. Because culture has always told us, move on, get over it, forget about it. Well, the body is the barometer of our truth. I can go to the fifth chamber, the metaphoric fifth chamber of my heart and find my husband, find my sister and find my friend who died on Easter Sunday. Yeah. What about the pain in my power center? What about at night when it's so quiet that I have images and visions of them? How do I meet myself in my heart of hearts and take care of me? Not selfishly as we were told, don't be selfish. This is different. Selfishness, self-care, care of the self. Yes. For humble reasons, for efficient, effective, and loving reasons that we recognize that to do our work well on the planet in the year 2021. The more conscious we are, the more powerfully we can affect positivity and bring it forth, even in the midst of severe pain, such as an illness that's diagnosed as Mm non-curable. What does each person want with that window that's theirs? And that's when I want to say one more thing, then please feedback or another question. That window of care is what Kubler-Ross talked about with her five stages. So this is a good opportunity to clarify something that's been quite confusing to the entire field of psychology and uh, individuals who are dealing with bereavement. 
Kubler-Ross's five stages were just four in that moment of that interview in 1961 with a young woman dying. Where are you, young woman? What do you do with what you know? Are you depressed? Are you in bargaining? Are you accepting or acknowledging? Where are you in your trajectory of recognizing that at a very young age, you may have a short time to continue to live? Yeah. What is your work? Psychology or confused professionals or jumping on the Kubler-Ross bandwagon took these to be used as tools for the bereaved. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're specifically designed for those individuals facing their mortality. Right. We can use this as a tool to help other people understand. Yet glibly used in uh, celebrity relationships, are they in denial? Are they bargaining? Uh, they're using Kubler-Ross. When last time I saw her, she said, have they gotten it straight yet? And I said, <laughs> and she wasn't. So she used some profanity in there as Kubler-Ross was known to do those bleeping five stages of grief. Why don't they use them properly? And we're still working on that. So to you, Elizabeth, we are. we're working on that. So, so you yeah. tell me, Jenny, you guide me here. What would you like us to look at at this time? So we, I just wanted to bring in a comment from one of our participants. Joan Halifax said, you must be able to sit with compassion and empathy and not be tied to outcome. Compassion and empathy explains this perfectly. And it is finding that balance of compassion, empathy, self-care, yeah. listening to what I need and being being able to fill up my oxygen mask first. So then I have the support, the tools, the resources, the life yeah. to then go out and help others. I can't save anybody if I, I am actively dying. Well, we're all actively dying, but I can't save anybody if my resources and my life is so low that I don't have anything else to give. That's true. And, and the word I would use in this case is serve because there are times that individuals will call me and they will be guilt ridden that they couldn't save somebody. Mm -hmm. So I differentiate between save and serve because Wonderful. me putting on my oxygen mask before an interview, before a session, enables me to be as present, authentic, compassionate. And, you know, I want to share something that my beloved sister Donna taught me. Donna died in 2002 of metastasized breast cancer. And she had had breast cancer uh, before and had been on tamoxifen for 11 years. She knew that we did all the research. There was a risk. We knew that something could reoccur and it could have actually been a, a more severe diagnosis. Although what happened to her is when she stopped the tamoxifen, her, um, the breast cancer returned and it had metastasized under the arm and into the brachial plexus, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Donna and I sat across from each other at lunch and I'm three and a half years older than Donna. And I always looked out for her as my younger sibling. And Donna looked at me and said, I have a question for you, Lynn. And I said, okay. Uh, Donna was also, if we're gonna be a little more esoteric here, I'm a Taurus, Donna Scorpio, Donna much more internal in her projection of her own personality. Donna looked at me and said, Lynn, I have a question to ask you. Can you be responsible to me and not for me? And I took a deep breath and I said, Donna, could you repeat that? Mm -hmm. And um, she said, sure. And she said, I need somebody to be responsible to me. I need to be responsible for my choices, my decisions the treatments I agree to, the doctors I choose. 
I need a conscious other to give me feedback. Yeah. To at times I might ask you, please ask the doctor everything or please take notes and don't talk. In this case, I need you to be responsible to me. Can you do that? Mm-hmm. And my perspective of the work I do and of my relationship with my younger sister shifted in that moment. This is something I use and I've written on in a book called Sibling Loss Across the Lifespan. Mm-hmm. This is very uh, key that when we are in service as Roshi Joan Halifax names and states, we are really looking for this connection in honest and sincere, authentic compassion and service to the other in the empathic agreement. We are not, Donna asked me not to be attached to the outcome in her words. Mm -hmm. She said, this is my life where it's going to take me got to be my decisions. And she did die at 49 years old. Yeah. And in serving my sister, I did get pushback from other family members saying that somebody needed to, no, 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 no. This was her time, Mm -hmm. her time to face what it is she called her life, her mortality, her, her journey. And I was a witness a support, an advocate, a bystander. And also, as per the request, I protected her from others that felt they were entitled to tell her what to do. So being responsible, too, is a huge piece that comes right back into the self-care aspect. Because if I feel it's my work to save somebody, I'm in manipulation, not in service. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to recognize my role and what's being asked of me. Whether it's for tools for somebody who doesn't want to explore their whole life, they just want to get metaphorically on with things versus somebody saying, I couldn't feel worse. I want to explore all the grief I've been carrying because prior losses are re-stimulated by fresh loss. Mm-hmm. And so things resurface, asthma or um, hives or certain conditions exacerbate during the grief period, the bereavement yeah. period, because our endocrine system is working over time. And our work is to get ourselves out of the parasympathetic nervous system into the backward, backward, please listen. Our sympathetic is the peaceful one. We want to go from the sympathetic, which is the stressful nervous system, into the parasympathetic. That's where we use our integrative therapies, our Roman chamomile, massage, meditation, walking meditation, uh, yoga, breath work, chanting. Degriefing uses integrative therapies to transform embodied grief, fresh grief. We're not victimized by our grief, although many feel that because of how painful it can be. Mm -hmm. We are given actually, and in the new age lingo, somebody would go, oh, come on. Let's take it out of new age lingo and say that the loss of something profoundly dear to us gives us an opportunity to explore our identity. Absolutely. Absolutely. How long does it take? It depends on the person. Mm -hmm. What we use in terms of our personality, our self-care habits, our, what we've learned. I am by nature, I was a a runner. I was a track. I was a physical education teacher and I was more of a track and field and volleyball, basketball um, dance. So when I know I've done a full day's work and I feel the need to discharge, transform, I can get on my treadmill or I can do some aerobics and put on music and work out to music because my body at the end of the day may not know whose pain I'm carrying. Right. So I ask, is this mine? In some cases, it may have re-stimulated something that's definitely mine. Yet, in most cases, the 
majority of what I'm feeling is from the session work I've done mm-hmm. and need to use it to work out, work it out and learn from it. Listen, like listen to the voices, listen to the difference of the judgmental mind or the compassionate observer. What applies to me? How do I serve the next client? How do I serve my dear friends? And I'm going to give a tongue-in-cheek comment here. It's very hard to counsel our own families. (laughs) Yes. It's almost, I won't say totally, totally, totally impossible, but almost. So in your Rolodex, if a family member asks you for support or help, have somebody that you can say, you know, we're related. We have so much history. I'd like to refer you to a colleague who can speak to you without um, the baggage that history offers us to schlep. Right, right. Right. And in my manual, I call this grief schlepping. (laughs) We can carry our, our pain and hurt forever. We just would need a bigger suitcase or a bigger steamer trunk or the decision to free our bodies from having to carry all this. Mm-hmm. and serving ourselves, walking our talk, if you will. Yeah, and I think that's what it comes back to, the difference between um, the difference in time in somebody's grief journey, in my opinion, is a direct, directly correlated with the decisions that we make on how we deal with that grief, what we do with it, how we come back to ourselves, ground ourselves, practice self-care, move that grief around self-talk right also of course Mm -hmm. you know one of the hardest ones that i found um the hardest situations is often somebody talking about having lost someone to suicide and blaming themselves for not knowing or blaming themselves for not more cleverly intervened or metaphorically saved when it comes to the drug world, which in today's world is, is quite an issue for all of us, watching young kids lose parents due to f- different combinations of drugs, whether it's heroin or opioids or uh, opioid pills, or whether it's uh, fentanyl patches, or if it's methamphetamines, whatever it is that people are combining. What I often hear is I feel so guilty, I didn't know where I feel guilty I didn't stop them. Mm-hmm. And I work with guilt differently because one of my phrases is unless you had handcuffed yourself to this person every day of your life and their life, they have free will. Unfortunately, sometimes mental disturbance suggests that this is a good idea. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the things that we must talk about is I use the uh, catch-all phrase of guilt. I liken it to the example of when we go to the dentist, this heavy apron that they put on us to protect our private parts. For men, it's their, their sexual organs, and for women also, our breasts and ovaries, uterus, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. When we lift this heavy apron, the truth of what's under it, is what's fueling our pain. It can be rage, resentment, unresolved communications, exclusion, betrayal. We call it guilt when we feel like we haven't done what we could have, yet we often don't recognize that we couldn't do more and self-talk or letting the mind have its way with us. The mind's a fabulous tool. I needed that to be here with you now. Mm -hmm. Yet to help another recognize that it wasn't their fault, that they didn't know what was going on. We need to get beneath that word guilt and ask, what else do you feel? You might feel anger. You might feel extreme frustration that this person's been in and out of rehab four or five times. So what we need to do is compassionately use skillful questioning. Why do you feel it was yours to fix, solve, prevent? Did you do everything you could that you knew to do? Was it just their 
life and their life story that took them to this place. Mm-hmm. And it's our work to learn to live with it and acknowledge the pain of living without people we love. And I think to acknowledge the pain of of their circumstances, that they were in so much pain, so much mental, psychological, emotional, whatever kind of distress that they were carrying, so much pain that they would go to lengths that are opposite of human nature. That's right. That's right. And to have compassion for them as well. That's absolutely true. And Kubler-Ross was somebody who spoke of this quite a bit regarding veterans taking their own lives after what they've been through and not being able to somehow reorganize the trauma or a year of being in a jungle or watching friends die, the, the neuroplasticity that's possible in today's world to change the thinkings, thinking to, to give what we might use as hope or possibility. So, you know, I say the phrase, we're all in this together, and to some degree we are, and to other degrees, we can't truly, which is one of the phrases to avoid, which is I can only imagine. And the truth is, in many cases, we can't imagine the pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. We, we either hear about it after, or we witness it through others, or we do our best to meet the the suffering individual in their heart of hearts and at least search our soul to see if we can provide some tools for them in order to be compassionate. As Jack Cornfield says, it's got to start with the self. Then compassion for others and no compassion to self is, is not the full fueled being of well-being. Mm-hmm. Again, the word being you know, are yeah. we human doings? Are we human beings? Mm-hmm. What are, how do we serve each other now when the world has been turned upside down and inside out and we're looking for some sense of normalcy or need to redefine what are the new normals are? Yeah. Time is just flying by. It's been such an enriching and amazing conversation. Um, if you could offer one piece of advice to people who are trying to make sense of grief or trying to start that moving process, start, start that process of moving their grief, okay, what would you. you tell them? I would say to please start with nostril breathing. Nostril breath keeps panic and anxiety at a minimum and increases the ability to feel compassion or empathy toward the self. The other thing is left hand on the heart, right hand over. It's called metabhavana, which is compassion to self. This is in the language of the Buddha, the Pali language, P-A-L-I. I would also say use writing as a tool because the mind thinks vertically and the body feels horizontally. So just writing to express aberrant thoughts, or questions, skillful questions often have the answers that reside within these skillful questions. How can I best embrace this pain of loss? Mm -hmm. Who was this person to me? How can I learn from this very difficult period of time to trust myself more and recognize that um, loss is a fact of the human condition and that as I learn to deal with each loss specifically and take an overview, like on the degriefing timeline, what have my losses been? What's re-stimulated? How can I make sense of where I'm at now? Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I would offer your listeners, as I mentioned earlier, I'm one of many individuals in the field that feel passionate about the work we do. And we all have our own combined protocols that have worked for us and we want to share with others. I want to offer again a free 20 minute half hour touch base with anybody that wants to ask me anything. It does it's no obligation. They don't have to book a session. I do my work in Mark's honor and Donna's honor 
and in many clients. And one of the things Mark asked, I asked Mark and how he answered was, what am I to do with my life when you die? This is what I asked my 36 year old husband. And he said, learn to love everyone and everything as you love me, which I thought was quite a task. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It could take a whole lifetime. So my offer comes from his heart through me to you, to your listeners. I will gladly, gladly spend 20 minutes, half hour, no obligation. If I know of somebody who's fabulous for exactly what you're looking for, I refer and I Mm -hmm. recommend because service means I'm doing the highest good for people who encounter me on this journey. And so I I honor that. And that's about my integrity. So I invite, I welcome my websites in flux. We're working on getting it tweaked and uh, don't let that stop you. I'm right here and I will respond. Just tell me that you heard me talking with Jenny and you have some questions for me. When can we speak? Wonderful. It's really an honor to be able to do this. So I thank you so, so much. So how can people reach out to you while your website is in flux? Well, the website's still happening. I'm going to post the flyer for the training. Just realize we're rewording things because in the time of COVID, we needed to address issues that in a thanatology or a grief-related site didn't have as much information on trauma. Mm. And because we're using these screens to connect, I need more information on the site. So it's still viable. It's just not... Uh, I can't yet take that <sighs> right soon, soon, soon. And then I'll revise again, but that's what I'm looking for. That <sighs> expression of thank you very much. And now we continue. Yeah. So, Jenny, I want to thank you because you're offering such a, a, a delicate, delicious and deliberate service to individuals that can listen and and integrate and and really consider what they need for themselves and uh you need to be commended for that and i need to tell you how honored i am to be talking with you today thank you you're welcome so you didn't tell us your website all those w's https etc degriefing degriefing it's an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp and we give George Carlin uh, credit for that, degriefing.com, spelled just like that, a D-E in front of the grief, G-R-I-E-F-I-N-G.com. And you can reach me that way, and there's lots of information. We can set up a phone call, a Zoom call, and you can find me. Also on Facebook under Integrative Grief Therapy, because that's what degriefing is. It's a focused combination on service. So I thank you so much. and. Um, we could talk another five hours, I'm sure. And yet this is a good amount for individuals to absorb. Um, we have a question from one of our participants. Do you take insurance? I do not take insurance. I do slide my scale appropriately to serve individuals um, for many, many reasons. Many of us are not uh, tangling with the insurance companies right now due to their lack of understanding about what grief is. So mm-hmm. as we educate ourselves we hope to educate them as well so i'll work with people i don't turn people down for monetary issues if it's the right combination i'm on board totally pro bono work wonderful is there anything else you would like to share with us lynn just the fact that we'd be overly sensitive now to how unusual this moment is in time and history and recognize that lots of people are quite stressed. There's a good stress, which is called EU stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, and then there's distress. And because of solastalgia and global planetary changes and climate, et cetera, many people are a lot more stressed than they'll acknowledge Mm -hmm. and have a much shorter fuse of tolerance. So that patients, Nostril breathing, it really does, when I give my certification quizzes at the end, one question is, what helps keep us centered, grounded, and aware? And it's really nostril breath. That with nostril breathing, we can, in fact, assess things with less confusion. And so to be gentle with ourselves and to be gentle with others. Mm -hmm. To find a way to speak our truth. 
so that we feel heard. Grieving people more than anything need to be heard and met exactly where they are. Yeah. And so the mind has a body and the body has a mind. So when you call me, bring both to our meeting and we'll, we'll acquaint heart to heart and go from there. Um, I think that that's it. I certainly could talk more because there's so much. Mm -hmm. I would encourage people to research the parasympathetic nervous system. Simply Google it so we understand that we have tools that we can use. I carry a bottle of Roman chamomile and lavender oil with me wherever I go, especially when I'm attending to somebody at home or in the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, I use Tibetan bowls. I use tuning forks. I used music that will help regulate the endocrine system because that's the system that goes out of alignment. When we go in shock, the endocrine system kind of flips. That's the emotional regulation system. And when the pituitary, the thymus, the pineal, or the thyroid get backed up or out of sync, we do suffer. So proper diet, I would mention, uh, nutritionist named Francis Holmes, who talks about uh, feeding the bereaved. And I would suggest that you ask yourselves, each one, what do I need to feel as grounded and centered as I can? Mm -hmm. And have that be a practice, a little meditation in the morning. On my websites, there are also somatic quick tips, running hands under cold water, shaking them out and different tools. There's a very ancient yoga tool called Tratak, T-R-A-T-A-K, wonderful for balancing the third eye and the pineal gland. That's what I'm about, tools that work for individuals. There's no cure or end to loss. Therefore, grief is part of the human condition. Yeah. And so I'm available. And it's my life's work. I'm clear about that with the teachers I had. It would have been hard to miss the directional signals. Kubler-Ross, Stephen, and Andrea Levine was like, okay, okay, I'm on board now. So yeah, yeah. Kubler-Ross gave me a hug and with the back of her foot, kicked me in the behind and said, get going and keep going. We need people in this field. So anybody who wants mentoring or is considering working with grief, that would be also something I would be thrilled to entertain for a half hour interview. Is this a good way for you to focus your studies? Mm -hmm. So hopefully the book for the public will be coming out soon and just lots of my writings little by little by little. So. Wonderful. I, yes. Thank you so much again. I feel very honored and humbled, Jenny, you hold space so beautifully and this is a great venue for this moment in our incarnation. Thank you again, truly. Thank you so much. I've I've learned so much from you. And like, I feel like I'm a reciprocal of all of the learning that you've received from your experiences, from your teachers, from your mentors, from your work. So I, I feel honored to be talking with you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Let's not forget Bessel van der Kolk, just as an aside. And namaste to all my teachers who have been macheting the path to make it easy to continue to machete the path. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. And thank your staff. This has been a fabulous experience, truly. Wonderful. So if you enjoyed this, you can join us next time in our journey of exploring humanity one heart at a time. And you can also donate to the program so we can continue to have conversations like these in the future. And I will put the link to that in the chat and it will be in the show notes as well. And more of my work can be found on my website, grievingcoach.com and Facebook, jenny.renterdiltz. And I'm also on LinkedIn, jennydiltz-grievingcoach. So thank you for joining us today and we will sign off. Thank you. Bye everybody. Thank you so, so much. Big hugs, cyber hugs. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time, where we share real-life experiences of converting grief into growth.
Just a reminder, we will be moving from a weekly to a bi-weekly release schedule starting in January of 2023 with subscription-only content on some of the off-weeks, so be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on exclusive interviews and insights. And if you are struggling with your grief and would like help, I have recently opened the enrollment for my program, Converting Grief into Growth. It is an individualized coaching program to support you in and through your grief and or teach you to support others as they do the same. Converting Grief into Growth consists of eight one-to-one sessions that each include a writing prompt and relevant action steps that you can implement immediately. The length of the program is individualized because each journey is different. We all have different losses, different styles of grieving, and different processing speeds. As a result, each journey will be individualized. We will go as fast as possible and as slow as necessary to get you long-lasting and permanent growth in your life. So far, all of my clients have finished the program in two months or less and are still reaping the benefits of their time with me more than a year later. If, however, after two months you feel like you still need more time, you can purchase a monthly add-on for continued support. Through the end of the year, I'm offering Converting Grief into Growth for 50% off. If this is something you'd like to explore further, reach out to me through my website, grievingcoach.com, or send me an email at jenny at grievingcoach.com. We'll schedule a time to chat and see if this is a good fit for you. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters. So share your story.